The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's take our Bibles now, if you would, and open them to 2 Peter chapter 1. Our subject this evening is Living by Maturing, and we are talking about the process of sanctification whereby the Holy Spirit conforms us to the image of Christ. Now, I'd like to read our text this evening of 2 Peter 1, and we're going to read the first ten verses of the chapter. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God. Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he which lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, rather, the brethren, or rather, rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Now, much of the... New Testament is written for believers who are facing a crisis of faith. There is a continuing undercurrent as you read through this epistle that flows through the epistle uh, that shows that believers that are living in difficult times will often wonder if they are truly saved. And we see in Scripture that the, uh, the words of God here, the, the books of the Bible, the epistles that are written, that the writers had to deal with that many times with Christian people. Paul dealt with it when he wrote to the church at Thessalonica. Uh, They were going through such difficult times that they thought that Christ had returned without their knowledge and they'd been left behind to experience the wrath of God. In 1 John, uh, John uh, wrote to help believers to reach real assurance of their faith by giving them different tests that they could use to prove that their faith was genuine. Did they keep the commandments? That was one of his tests. Or did they uh, believe the doctrines of the faith, especially those about the full humanity and the full deity of Jesus Christ? Did they love Christ supremely? Did they love each other? And those are all tests that could be applied to see if they were really in the faith. And then in the book of Hebrews, the author helped strengthen the faith of believers by informing them of the superiority of Christ and telling them that they needed to know more about who Christ is because increasing their knowledge of Christ was critical to building their faith. And then here in 2 Peter, we see 
Peter's approach to the assurance problem. And Peter's angle is for, for Christians to examine their faith by looking for the fruits of the Spirit in their lives. Now, he doesn't actually use those terms, fruits of the Spirit, like the Apostle Paul did in the book of Galatians. But when you examine both of these texts, both in Galatians and here in Second Peter, you can see that the theme is exactly the same. And so Peter's approach is to point out that believers are partakers of the divine nature, that we have been born again by an incorruptible seed, by the Word of God. And that's what he says in the first epistle in chapter 1. And the Holy Spirit in us, that incorruptible seed of the Word of God, will produce in us nothing other than Christ-likeness. And so we're talking here about what the Holy Spirit does by a process of continual sanctification. And then Jesus had still another way of teaching about assurance. He spoke of good trees and of bad trees. And he said that you can tell which type of tree that it is by the fruit that it produces. And so if the fruit of a, of a person's life is dominated by ungodly, by antichrist activities then that is a person who has not been truly born again. Now, according to Jesus, if the tree is healthy, if it's grown from a good seed of faith, then the fruit will always be good. Well, all of these approaches amount to the same. Uh, a person who claims Christ should always be in the examination mode. He should always be looking at his life, trying to elevate his life, because elevation in the Christian life always produces the assurance that we need that we really are the children of God. Now, this is what he says in verse number 10. He said, Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. If ye do these things, ye shall never fall. And these things that he's speaking of are the additions that we make to our faith in verses 5 through 7. So we return to the text here as Peter shows that a growing faith, uh, someone who is maturing in the faith, that is a sure sign of their salvation. And so in these three verses, five through seven, we're looking at graces that are to be added to the Christian life, and these we have called indicators of growth. And we are to be diligent about these because they are actually the backbone of our assurance. And so what Peter is telling us here, that if you leave these things, if you depart from this, if these aren't evident in your life, then you're going to fall away from the steadfastness of your faith and thus of your hope in Christ. Now, each of these graces have an underlying base. They are there because the Holy Spirit lives in you by faith, and they must be cultivated in order for you to grow. And these are not independent graces, they are interdependent graces. So as one grows, they all grow. Now let's take a look at these graces again. We've already covered uh, some of them in the past message. We'll review just briefly here for a moment. Uh, the first one that we see is virtue. And virtue we have called a, a demonstration of being able to choose right over wrong. Virtue is more than just making good moral choices, but rather it's the insistence or it's the strong determination to do what's right. It's to do what's right when it's very difficult to maintain godly principles. And this is what you do instead of exchanging godly principles for the easy thing to do, to follow the convenient ways of the world, you decide that you're going to follow what Christ wants you to do. 
Virtue can cost you some things. Virtue can cost you friends. It can damage relationships. It might even cost you money. You might wonder, well, how, how could virtue cost me money? Well, I, I'm reminded of this example of what was taught in the Old Testament, that God was very adamant about correct weights and measures, and his law insisted that people were to be impeccably honest in all of their dealings and their business practices. And so in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, Moses gave the people the law, and he says, Thou shalt not have in thy bag divers' weights, a great and a small, Thou shalt not have in thine house divers measures, a great and a small, but thou shalt have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure shalt thou have, that thy days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. For all that do such things and all that do unrighteously are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. And there God is teaching us to be honest people. Virtue does not allow a merchant to put his finger on the scale. Virtue doesn't allow you to cheat on your income taxes. I was asked an interesting question uh, uh, some time ago, and the answer that I gave to this question might be considered somewhat of a hot potato, but this person asked me, what would you do if there was an illegal alien that, I'm, I'm not talking about outer space aliens, I'm talking about in the world, but uh, if an illegal alien, what would you do if an illegal alien joined the church and you found out about that? Or if you, or there was one attending church, what would you do if you found out about that? Would you turn that person into the INS? Well, I'm not so sure anybody really cares about that at this point. But this is what I would do. I, I said, well, no, I don't think it's my responsibility to turn that person into the government. But what I did, would do is to teach that person that it is wrong to enter our country illegally, that it's wrong to break the laws of the country, the laws of the government, because those laws are also laws that are given by God. And as long as they're not laws that oppose his word, then we are to obey the laws that were given. And I know that the objection to that is always going to be, well, these people have no hope in their country. They're, they are entitled to a better way of life. They're entitled to be able to support their families and to improve their living conditions. And to that I would say, where does that promise exist? Where in the Word of God do we find that God says anything about any of that, that He promises us a better life or promises that we should be able to support our family? That's not an inherent right that we have. Now we find by reading the Word of God that Christians were outcast. Paul said that we are the off-scouring of the world. Neither Paul, Peter, or anyone else ever preached that we are to have a materially prosperous life or to be... And, uh, uh, to be entitled to better living conditions. In fact, it was quite the opposite. If you want some insight into that, what you need to do is to read the book of Philemon and see how Paul treated a runaway slave. And Paul didn't, didn't teach him to pursue freedom. He didn't tell him to lay low and to hide out to be sure that nobody could, could uh, be, stay out of sight so nobody can catch you and turn you in. But he told this slave to return to his master and to submit to him because that was the law. That was, and the law, of course, is God's way of doing things. In Ephesians 6, verse number 5, it says, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as unto Christ. So I can't attest to what the world will do, but I can say this, I do know what a Christian should do. He should be virtuous. He should be a person who lives a life of honesty. 
And I know that's a whole lot easier for me to say as I'm standing here. It's a whole lot easier for me to say that than it is for them who are going through that and living through it to do it. And this doesn't mean that we support slavery or abuse of citizens in any way, but we do learn this from it, that, it's, that virtue can be very, very hard on our flesh. When you're challenged, what are you going to do? Are you going to, char- or are you going to choose the, the difficult path of doing what's right? Well, if you do, the Word of God says that will add to your assurance. God will make sure that your faith is assured if you choose the path that is right. And then there's the next grace, which is knowledge. Knowledge can be described as correct spiritual insight. And so with increasing knowledge, we we said this, that you learn how to live. That when you study the scriptures, you learn what a virtuous life actually is. And so when you face those areas, which at first seem to be varying shades of gray then what you're able to do is to take your knowledge of the Word of God and to apply spiritual principles to those things and learn what you are supposed to do. Now, the first example that comes to my mind is Paul's statement in Ephesians 5.18, where he says, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And I've explained to you many times that the primary emphasis in that verse is not whether whether you should or should not drink alcohol, But rather, that's a verse about submission to the Spirit. And the following verses follow that theme of submission through different scenarios until it comes down to the one that I mentioned just a moment ago in Ephesians 6, 5, where it said that servants are to be obedient to their masters. But as we look at that scripture, when we start to gain spiritual insight, then we can also look at these things and we can begin to see the secondary inferences that are there. What else can be taught or learned from the Scriptures when the Bible makes a statement like that? Well, when you know Scripture, then you can apply or learn the secondary inferences. And so you learn that what you shouldn't do is allow those kinds of temptations in your life. And you ought to be able to see how that drinking alcohol can adversely affect another Christian, can weaken his faith. And then you ought to be able to see how that thing is a bad example before your children. And so what you learn by the scriptures when you get knowledge, when you add knowledge to your faith, and you learn what is this thing that best models Jesus Christ? How can I live to best model what Jesus is? And that's what the grace of growing is all about. And this is just another proof that a person is a Christian and that he does have the mind of Christ. Well, going on to another grace, the next one, and this is new to us this evening, we haven't discussed this yet, and that is temperance. And for temperance, we'll say, stop before you sin. Temperance is stop before you sin. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness. Temperance simply means self-control. Temperance means to discipline yourself, so that you don't reach out and grab that forbidden fruit. I touched a little bit on this when we talked about knowledge, and uh, these things are very hard to separate at times because they are interdependent graces. Um, But knowledge and uh, and temperance can go hand in hand. Uh, We discussed how that uh, Paul and Peter both lived in a very sexually charged society. In the scripture preceding the... Gifts of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Remember how we talked about that 
Paul listed four sexual sins at the very beginning as characteristics of the ungodly. And I think it's interesting that along those same lines that in, in Proverbs, Solomon compared the seduction of sin to an adulterous woman. It's interesting that the scripture chooses sexual sins to compare these things, but he said, he said that the seduction of sin is like an adulterous woman, the one who entices, entices a person to make sin very inviting. And it's very easy for us to gravitate to those types of sins because they are so self-satisfying at the first. And then in the rest of Scripture, God speaks about unfaithfulness to him as being marital infidelity. And I, I don't think we have any children left here, here tonight, but we would want to cover their ears but because God says about this, he says, you are whoring after other gods. And there's a graphic res, rep, uh, representation of that in, in Hosea where God told the prophet to marry a prostitute. And then she broke his heart by, because of her other lovers. And that was God's way of saying, this is the way it feels. This is the way it feels when my people leave me to go after other gods. And it's interesting that in those heathen religions that sexual sins had a great part to do with their worship. So Peter adds temperance to this list. And temperance simply means to have self-control over any type of sin. So this is what a maturing believer does. He does his very best to stay away from sin. He steers clear of sin because every time that he indulges in a sin, it's a step backwards to his maturity. It shatters the confidence that he has in his faith. He doesn't know how he's going to hang on if he keeps falling into that sin. And I'll tell you this, that Satan knows very, very well which temptations are most likely to yield the best results. And I mean for him, not for you. He knows what things to tempt you with. He knows the areas where you are vulnerable. And so Satan is never going to waste his time on the types of sins that don't actually bother you. Now, as an example of that, Satan never tempts me with drugs. I don't, I don't have any temptation to take drugs. I'm not severely tested by alcohol. Alcohol's like garlic to me. I, I can't stand the smell of that stuff. And so I'm not tempted to drink alcohol, and I'm not tempted to eat the sinful foods of Egypt like garlic. I'm not going to touch those things. So Satan doesn't waste time in those areas. He's not going to tempt me with those things, but Satan knows the areas where I am vulnerable, and Satan goes for those things every time. I'm not going to tell you what those things are, because I don't, I don't think the, the pulpit's a good place for a confessional booth, so I'm not going to tell you where they are, but I can, what they are, but I can tell you this. These things are very, very difficult to fight. And Satan knows where your weakness is, and he's going to hit you right at that point. Satan hits below the belt, too. And he's, he's going to hit you hard at the areas that you are the most vulnerable. But where do you have your help? What, what enables you to overcome that? What happens when Satan goes for the jugular? Well, the ability of self-control is there. That's one of the graces of the Spirit. But that grace has to be very diligently cultivated by submitting to the Spirit's control. This is what the Spirit does. He is holy, and so what he does is to restrain unholy activity. Well, then another interesting characteristic of this word temperance is that it's a sports term. Paul used a, a form of it in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25, where he compared the Christian life to running a race. And what he was speaking of there, he was comparing it to the ancient Olympic Games. And so in that, in that uh, 
chapter in verse number 25, he said, And every man that strives for the mastery, or, or as we would say, the one who wants to be the best, the one who wants to win the gold medal, everyone that wants to be the best is temperate in all things. And that means that he trains for it. He limits the things that hinder him. He trains with proper diet and exercise. He abstains from alcohol. He doesn't indulge himself with sexual things. But he's focused on his training, so he maintains discipline. Oh, is that easy? Oh, no, that's not easy. It's easier not to exercise. It's easier to sit at a table with all the foods that are fatty and the things that really taste good. It's much easier to do that. But here's a person who wants to discipline himself. He wants to win. And so he eats or drinks wheat germ instead of Budweiser. And he eats Wheaties instead of Captain Crunch. And the reason that he does that is because he has his eyes on the prize. He wants to win the prize. He's going to do everything he can to get that prize. And what is the Christian's prize? Well, it says, Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. But here is the Christian's prize. It is an incorruptible crown. Philippians 3.14 says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And that same idea is present here in 2 Peter. We pick it up in verse number 8 through a negative. He said, For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that brings us to the next logical progression, and that is patience. Lewis Johnson made an interesting analysis of this chapter, and he said that Peter's approach is like that of the Greek and Roman philosophers, these philosophers that were called the Stoics, because what they really liked was progressive arguments. And Johnson said that Peter's progression is like climbing up a ladder. It's a progressive argument. It's like stepping up a ladder until you get to the very top. And at the top of this ladder is actually verse number 11, where Peter says, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is what you're going to get by stepping up this ladder, by adding all these virtues to your faith. Finally, you get to the very top where you are right there, where you are in the everlasting kingdom of God, an entrance abundantly into that kingdom. So the next rung is patience. And here is our analogy for patience. Take a licking, but keep on ticking. Some of you might, of my generation, you might remember that saying. That comes from an old Timex watch commercial, and that saying was made famous by a news commentator named John Cameron Swayze. Uh, John Cameron Swayze was a trusted news commentator. I mean, he was the Walter Cronkite of his era, the Brian Williams of ours. Oh, wait, that's not quite right, is it? No, he wasn't the Brian Williams of ours, but, but he was a very trusted commentator, and he used to do these commercials for Timex watches, and in one of these commercials, they strapped a Timex watch to the propeller of a boat. And this boat took off, and in a little while it came back, and John Cameron Swayze took the watch off of the propeller and put it on his arm, and he held it up. And he said, Timex, it takes a licking, but it keeps on ticking. Oh, it was ticking, but he didn't actually say whether it ever it actually keeps time any longer, but it was ticking at least. Well... Those commercials were, were so successful that in the late 1950s, 
two-thirds out of every watch that was sold in America was a Timex watch. Now, here's the idea. How does that relate to 2 Peter chapter 1? Well, it's the ability of a Christian to stay in there, the ability to hang in there no matter how hard the way gets. Well, who would be a good example of that? Well, James tells us in James chapter 5, he gave us the classic, classic example. He said, Take my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord, for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy, which endure. You might want to underline the word endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Now, endurance... James talks about here, endurance is the same as patience. James says happy is the person that endures because in the end he claims that prize. It is that abundant entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior. So what he's talking about here is the doctrine of perseverance. Christians must persevere. That's a necessary thing for us. Real Christians will persevere, and if they don't, then it shows that they weren't really Christians in the first place. So however you want to say this, endurance and perseverance and patience, these are all the same idea. But however you want to say that, each is a strong indicator of real faith. Now we know at times it's very hard to maintain the fight. The idea in the modern church is, well, if you can't beat them, join them. And so what do we find has happened in our churches today? Every moral taboo has eventually fallen and it becomes a part of the church. And you know why that it does? It's because it's much easier to claim the world than it is to conquer the world. And so you have people that just give up the fight. And that's the way that it goes with doctrinal compromise. You look and see what churches are doing today. They want to build the church and they want fast growth. So how are they going to do it? Well, they start to get rid of the things that separate Christians from the rest of the world. They start to make the church like the world. They get rid of the doctrines that separate us from the world. And so what they do is they adopt the purpose-driven model. And the purpose-driven model is nothing other than Satan's model for building the church. And so churches begin to meet the felt needs of the people in the neighborhoods, and they adopt their lifestyles, and they adopt their music, they copy their opinions, and they just tidy them up a little bit by Christianizing them. But that's not what patience is. Patience is not surrendering to the world. It's about steadfast endurance and maintaining the integrity of the gospel no matter how hard that it gets. Even when the numbers begin to dwindle in the church, we say we're going to stand on what the Word of God says. We are not going to compromise in order to grow the church for any reason. So patience, that's not surrendering to the world. And who do you think perfectly modeled that? We already have the example of Job, but don't we even have a better example of this? We have the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Hebrews 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. That's our word, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now this is what Jesus did when he entered the world. He had no delusions in his mind about how his life was going to end. He knew exactly how hard the way would be. But he also knew this, that patiently enduring would lead him where? It would lead him back to the right hand of the throne of God. 
And this is exactly what Peter is telling us in the scriptures here. Patience leads us into the eternal kingdom. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Revelation 1.6, And he hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so Peter has in mind the person who bears up under trials, and he says, if you do this, this is a mark of maturity. Giving in and giving up, that's a sign that you aren't a Christian. I listen to John in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest that they were not all of us. So what is it that proves a real believer? A person who perseveres. A person who stays in. Those who don't have no reason to have assurance of their salvation. Now, the Apostle Paul also underscored the effect of perseverance. He said in 2 Corinthians 4, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Notice he says, troubled, distressed, perplexed, persecuted, cast down, bearing the sufferings of Christ, taken to the place of death. And he says, why do we do this? Why do we endure all this? And the reason is that the life of Christ might be manifest in our mortal flesh. We know that we're saved because the life of Christ is manifest in us. So you can take the opposite of all that. You can say that a person who does not persevere is not a real Christian. Enduring trials proves our faith. Now let's look at that ladder again and see how it works. We go back to temperance. When you lapse in self-control, that leads to doubt. And so assurance of salvation is what you need. It's going to be lost if you lapse into self-control, in your self-control. And so what Peter does here, he adds perseverance to this. That's the next rung because that says you need to stay in the training mode all of the time. Experience and endure the hardness. Endure it. You ignore the desire to take the easy way. So patiently endure, he says. You'll receive the prize. Take all the emotional hits. Take the physical ones. Take the spiritual ones. Bear up under affliction. Don't quit and don't stop. Take a licking and keep on ticking. Well, we come then to the fifth grace. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness. Now here he takes us up one more rung on the ladder, and this one, godliness, is to act like the Almighty. To act like the Almighty. Now I might just ask you a question. Are you already doing that? Or a lot of wives that say their husbands are doing that. They just act like the Almighty all the time. And uh, some church members say the same thing. You know, the pastor, he just acts like the Almighty. Well, I'm not talking about that. Those things are the antithesis of grace. 
Uh, this one is godliness, and it works in perfectly to this of the other graces because godliness is holiness. And what is holiness? Well, holiness is our sanctification. Titus chapter 2 says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Act like the Almighty is essentially the same as saying, be Christ-like. So we can't be talking about pride and arrogance. We can't be speaking of a lording pastor. We can't be talking about an uncompassionate husband, an overbearing husband. And I know I might be a little bit off topic with this, but I feel that I do need to mention it. There was one person that said, it's hard to be a pastor and a Christian at the same time. Now that's a kind of a strange and puzzling statement, and that sounds like somebody who's just been walloped by their pastor for some reason or another. Some pastors do act like God, but they don't act like God in a good way. What they do is they claim authority that they don't have, and they demand that people obey them without any discussion. Now, I alluded to this a few weeks ago in a bulletin article when I was writing on uh, Psalm 105 in verse 15, where it says, "...touch not mine anointed." and do my prophets no harm. And there are preachers, pastors who take that, that verse and they use that to defend obedience without any discussion. But what does it actually mean to act like God? Well, I, I saw a good example of this when I received a text from a friend that's in San Diego. And he, he texted me and he said, I want you to pray for me. He said, I have, this is his word, this is his text. I have an important meeting tonight. Pray that I will be of a meek, and humble spirit that is honoring before my King Jesus. A meek and a humble spirit. Now do you see why it's hard for some pastors to be pastors and Christians at the same time? Because if you have arrogance, if you're demanding, if you have draconian authority, none of that is actually godliness. Peter says in the first chapter, verses 15 and 16, or excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 1, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. So to add godliness is to be molded as a child of God into the image of the Son of God. Now let me tell you what that, what that actually means to us. It means that there ought to be a family resemblance. We are born into the family of God, and so who should we look like? Any suggestions? Who should we look like? Well, I think that we ought to look like God, shouldn't we? We ought to look like the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I take a look at some of the children around here, and some of them, there's no doubt which family they're in. You look at Dylan, and you say, well, who does Dylan look like? Well, it's a spitting image of Eric. I mean, that's little bitty Eric walking around. That's Dylan. Or you take Elizabeth Petro. Whose child is Elizabeth Petro? That one's a little bit harder because he actually looks like Brian's mother and his sister. A little bit of Brett maybe in there too. But there's a family resemblance. But we're not talking about here a physical resemblance. And I'm happy for that because I sure don't want to look like many of you. So I'm not, we're not talking about physical resemblance here. Uh, I, I read something the other day that uh, somebody figured out how tall that Jesus was and how much he weighed. I don't know how they did this, but they came up with something, some kind of a formula to figure this out. And the conclusion was that Jesus was five feet tall, 
and 110 pounds. And with that Mediterranean skin and the five-foot size, our new picture of Jesus looks like a skinny Jorge. So that, that, that might have been what Jesus looked like. But the idea here, the idea here is spiritual resemblance. Not the physical resemblance, but the spiritual. And that is holiness. That's what God is. Now the problem, of course, is there's the ungodliness of the world, there's the unrighteousness of the world, and that's what stands in the way of our righteousness. You ever felt at times that the whole world is against you? You know, we don't actually know what it means to have the whole world against us, but could you live a godly life if the whole world was against you? We have the support of other Christians, and so the world is not really, not everybody is against us. But what if you actually did did have this problem. Everybody in the world was against you. Could, could you live a godly life? Well, there was a man who actually did have the whole world against him, and that was Noah. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, and he lived in a world where everybody, everybody was against God. There was nobody on God's side, and so Noah had everybody who was against him. Now, there's an old painting of Noah in the ark and uh, in this painting, it shows the ark, and it shows the rain coming down, and the ark begins to be uh, lifted up on the waters, and there are people that are outside the ark, and you see these hands reaching up out of the water, and fingernails that are clawing against the side of the ark, and they're trying to get in. And that picture is a, is a symbol of the great sea of humanity that then had only one hope, and that was to get into that ark. And there was Noah... He was inside this ark of safety, and he was there because he was a godly man. He was a righteous man, and he was on the inside, and all of them are unrighteous, and they're on the outside. Well, that ark is a picture of Christ. There's safety in Christ. Peter mentioned Noah in the second chapter as an example of a righteous person who's in this sea of unrighteousness. And what he teaches is that it is possible to live a godly life no matter what goes on around you. It is possible, and God expects you to. And you know why he expects you to? It's because you are in the ark. It's because you are in the ark of safety, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So you don't have an excuse to live like the world, no matter how much the world is against you. Well, let me close with this scripture in Psalm chapter 1. I don't think that there is a better way to express what happens uh, with a godly person than this, what it says in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth, shall prosper. And so the godly person is that tree that brings forth his fruit in his season. Now what do you think the psalmist meant by fruit? What's on his mind here? Well, I think it sounds a lot like what Jesus said. The good tree brings forth good fruit. It sounds like Paul as he describes the fruit of the Spirit. It sounds like Peter when he speaks of adding these graces to your faith. This is maturity. This is reaching higher and higher and higher in our sanctification until we become like Christ. Now, we're going to stop there. Next time when we come back to this, it'll be in a couple of weeks. 
we're going to talk about these last two graces that we are to add, and then we'll be ready to move on to talk about the importance of maturing in our faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and thank you, Lord, for the lessons that we learned from it. Help us, Lord, that we might increase these graces in our life. We know that we have the ability. The Holy Spirit is living in us, and he provides these graces. And what we need to do is to yield to the Spirit's control and be ready to be used by the Spirit in order to do your work. Lord, help us to be what we ought to be as your people. Help us to stand in an ungodly world no matter what everyone else is doing. Help us to obey and to follow you. Be with us tonight, Lord. Bless our people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.